Hello. Who just snapped? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above the Dongcheng district of Beijing, I think, because we've gone through an entire week of epic sandstorms that are keeping us inside. Yes, last year at this time, I was locked inside because of COVID. Now I can't go outside because there are sandstorms. Beijing welcomes you. And it also welcomes David Moser calling in from across town so he doesn't get sandblasted on his way here to the studio. How you doing, David? Same as you. I, I, I wanted to mention this as well. I was assuming you had a great view of the sandstorm from your high uh, peak there. Uh, but also, I've been noticing I'm going to the, the air quality index a lot when I'm in the cab. And I went, Jesus Christ. Do you feel I have the feeling that these natural disasters are kind of waiting in line and sort of politely, you know, one leaves and the other comes in. Because if they hit us all at once, it would be, you know, the apocalypse. It's almost as if somebody should write some kind of book in which they parse the prevalence of natural disasters and connect it somehow to political legitimacy. Maybe some sort of (laughs) mandate of some kind. Something about a mandate of hell or something. Yeah, right. They're working on the branding. (laughs) They're going to focus group it. They're talking to a few people. Right. And with us today, calling in... From the United States, although that status may change very soon, we're pleased to welcome Jesse Appel, bilingual comedian and creator, has over 3 million followers on platforms around the world. He is a disciple of Master Ding Guangchuan, performs both Chinese and English comedy live and online, and is the founder of Jesse's Tea House, an online tea shop with some of the best tea you can buy anywhere you noted outside of China. Best tea anywhere. We'll just call it that. And uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast, Jesse. How are you guys doing? It's good to see some uh, some old Beijing faces. Not necessarily that you're old. You are old Beijing. You're Lao Beijing faces, not Lao Beijing faces, if that makes any sense. Yeah, That's I think a nice the por- save. The portrait on Tiananmen Square is a little older than me, <laughs> yeah. I think. A little older. Yeah. Not, not, not by not much. 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 Yeah. <laughs> So Jesse, how you been keeping these last three years? You're a, you do Chinese comedy, yep. but you've been based in the United States. Have you spoken with pretty much every Chinese community in North America so far? Or are there a few you still have to get to <laughs> it, before it, you come back to China? It feels like it. Uh, I miss the ones in Texas. Everybody keeps telling me that there's like Austin and Houston have some good communities that I haven't been to. But um, but I, you know, in the last year and a half, I've done Chinese comedy shows here in L.A., where I'm based, San Francisco, San Jose. Uh, Vancouver, Seattle, Toronto, New York, Boston, London, Paris, like wherever there has been to do Chinese comedy over the last year and a half, I've, I've tried to do it. Jesse, tell us, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with your brand and, and, and with your comedy, and there may be a couple people out there, I, I don't know, I mean, 3 million followers is a lot. Give us a bit of background. You know, tell us how you got involved in Chinese comedy, how you got involved, you know, working with Master Ding and and what's what's been your career path up to this, or at least to the point where COVID kind of derailed things for a moment. Sure. So unironically, I actually owe everything to David Moser uh, because uh, and David's just like, mm-hmm, yep, yep. And just not mm-hmm, eh, yep. probably true. <laughs> uh, but I actually do because 10 percent. Ten percent. I think that's the number. That isn't that the number we, we arrived yeah, at? Yeah, I think 10%. We, we said 10 percent. Where is it? Um, yeah, about that. Uh, no, but um, I was <laughs> I was studying abroad in China and I was um, thinking of ways that I could get back. And I 
thought about doing a uh, f- applying to do a Fulbright fellowship on Chinese improv because I had done improv comedy in America and I had just found out that there was a very small Chinese improv scene that was kind of growing and I had a ton of fun with them. I thought maybe something on cross-cultural comedy and I had uh, one very important meeting with David Moser where he said cross-cultural comedy is too vague. You should study Xiangsheng. I'm going to introduce you to Master Ding. Um, and then you should apply to do the, the Fulbright scholarship studying Xiangshou and Master Ding. I'm very glad I listened to every bit of that advice. <laughs> and I got a chance to have my first job out of college be doing comedy in China, studying the traditional Xiangsheng, uh, two-person sort of joker, straight man comedy style. And then while I was there, I started doing improv and stand-up and all the Western comedy styles. And uh, basically just everything grew slowly for nine years. I uh, started a comedy club in the Hutongs. I uh, performed all around the country, all around China. I performed on Chinese cruise ships, uh, you know, taking guests to, uh, from Shanghai to Tokyo, you know, performed on Chinese TV shows and just wherever I could get a chance to do this mix of intercultural comedy, I gave it a shot. And uh, the focus always is trying to figure out a way to bring people together through the comedy. Goodness knows there's enough forces trying to tear us apart. So in in that context, I was uh, filming a show in, uh, in January of 2020. I was on like uh, one of the Chinese versions of like Last Comic Standing, Huan Le Xi Duran, one of these uh, like uh, comedy shows. And they said, you got nine days between shoots if you want to do anything for Chinese New Year. And I decided to go home for Chinese New Year. And when I left, COVID was a rumor, don't spread rumors. When I landed, I found out that COVID is real. Wuhan is shut down. Your flight back is canceled. And my nine-day vacation has now lasted almost three and a half years. It's been a it's been a, a crazy last couple of years here in the States, basically trying to figure out what I'm doing with myself. Uh, and now, finally, I'm going to get a chance to go back to Beijing in May and June. I'm going to take two months. I'm going to see if I like it there, what's going on in China, uh, what I can do, what I can't do, and um, how to build in the new thing that I've done while I've been over here, which is uh, the the tea business that I started and now run online. So just uh, you can you can do a lot if you refuse to get a day job. <laughs> That's what I've learned. You know, I followed that with great interest, Jesse, because uh, I did see, you know, the, your trajectory of your career here and then there. And it, it may be a sort of a blessing in disguise, the disaster of COVID in some ways for you. I hope so anyway. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is that you, you, you were forced to be out of China for a while, but you tapped into this other audience of Huarin from, you know, whether they be from the mainland or wherever Chinese speaking countries. Mm. And as we've known for a long time, maybe even before uh, all these, uh, you know, comedy forums took hold in China, that the diaspora are starving for entertainment yeah. in their own language. Humor is very hard to appreciate, you know, if it's outside of your language and culture. Yeah. I have a, I have a Chinese wife and I know that she goes to bed at night looking at her cell phone watching only Chinese comedy and all yeah. Chinese singing. That's it. Yeah. I mean, because it's, they feel, it feels at home. So you, you're straddling these two worlds mm. in a very interesting way because you've done a lot of performing for Chinese audiences mm-hmm. in China. But then what I'm curious about is you've got this different sort of a diaspora Chinese who are probably a different age demographic and also some, you know, a different life uh, path, but, but they're also, in some sense, they have their feet in both cultures. They know a lot about American culture. What does it feel like to be doing stand-up or anything in this audience that knows America pretty well? 
Uh, it's and you don't have to explain a lot, and and yet you're they're also Chinese. You want to give them, you know, what is? How do you do that? How do you manage that? Uh, it, it's actually been a ton of fun. I love performing for the audiences here. I've been surprised that the diaspora audience in America and in Canada and in Europe uh, that I've performed for, we actually have a lot in common because we both have been straddling the cultures. We're both in a position of like struggle. We've both lived through struggling to adapt to a new culture and not losing our own. And I think we're all dealing with this situation right now where China's name outside of China is not in a great spot. And they want to continue to grow outside the country and don't want to feel bad about that. But they also want to be proud of being Chinese. And the dialogue that they're getting is influenced by, say, Western dialogue of, you know, diversity in film and culture and like, you know, uh, you know, whether it be like feminism or identity politics and all this stuff that is not really huge in the mainland. And so they're trying to incorporate that in in the same way that I can't like, you know, push that out either because I live on both sides of the the internet also. So we actually have a, a lot in common and it means that um, there's a there's a comfort with performing for them that is uh, that is great. So I start by doing the same bits that I would do in the mainland. And then the biggest change from a performing aspect is if I go into like in comedy and stand up, we'll call it an act out. If I'm like, you know, telling a story and I'm playing different people, in China, I would very carefully select which act outs I could do in English that wouldn't confuse people. But it was more than just the language. It was like, I don't want to have a, a, a type of character come up that people won't be able to handle. Uh -huh. But here in the States, like I have a joke that I've been doing where I get pulled over by a cop in Arizona and I can be doing the whole setup and stuff like, and was like, sir, you got to put that up on the dash. Like, you know, I can do the whole character because they have seen this character before and it's not yeah. and if i did that even in like shanghai where people had great english everybody would be like wow i understood <clears throat> that i'm so happy i understood that they'd be they'd be distracted by the fact that it just switched like that whereas these people they don't get to hear uh, comedy in their language but their language really is a bilingual chinese english mix so that um that has been super fun uh it's also been fun in the sense that uh, it almost feels like i'm back in the comedy scene in china in like 2015 or 16 when like uh. the, like people are doing it for fun and there's no money in it but like people really hope that one day they might be able to do something special and it's about expression and it's like it's all this stuff that in the mainland actually has started to taper off as because you can make money in comedy now um, you're getting a lot of like, you know, bandwagoners coming in and trying to do five to 10 minutes of jokes and get on TV. And the people here are doing it for the love of the game. So it's actually been a great experience. Apart from the, uh, the language thing, and I, I really like this idea. In some ways, being bilingual, doing comedy for a bilingual audience, you're, you actually are speaking the same language because you live with your heads in kind of both worlds. But beyond the yeah. language, you know, you're talking about how, for example, when you do an act out, and you're doing an act out in China or for a predominantly Chinese audience, you have to think through it differently. You have to plan it differently. Yeah. What are some other ways when you're thinking of bits, when you're writing from when you're writing your material, how do you approach, what's the difference in your approach between, I say, a Chinese audience on a cruise ship, or if you're preparing, let's just say, you know, the times that you do like English language stand-up or in before when you were doing some stand-up for predominantly English-speaking audiences? Yeah. 
it's about the uh, balance of like, you need to know what their life experience is. Like what are people in the audience, what have they lived through? There's a lot of stuff that like mentally people can know, but if they don't have any emotional connection to it, it's really hard to make them laugh. It's like easy to like mentally stimulate them, but it's hard to get laughs if there's no emotion involved. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I do is actually about my life because wherever I go, whether I'm on that cruise ship or whether I'm in Beijing or whether I'm in you know Boston or LA, I'm always me. And the identity of me figuring out how to live between these worlds kind of makes sense to everybody at some level. Some specific jokes, if I'm like, oh, this, this show is entirely like 80-year-old Chinese ladies on a cruise ship, I might do like language jokes or accent jokes or stuff that's kind of going to play. Uh, but one of the things I'm curious about is to see whether some of the jokes that I've written here in America, and there's not as many as I wish there were because we don't have any open mics here. It's really hard to develop content if you can't get up in front of people and do it at a low stakes thing. I'm interested to see whether the jokes about my life the last couple of years in America that are connecting to the Chinese diaspora will work over there because mm -hmm. some of it, I think intellectually people will get, but whether it will be funny is another mm -hmm. choice. Like for instance, I have, a, I have a whole bit about being not like getting uh, into weird situations because I'm confused. I don't know whether Asian people I see on the street here, are they Chinese or Korean? Like, right. you know, mm -hmm. like here, like in China, if you're Chinese living in America, oh, that's a real problem. He would have that problem. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm Chinese, he's going right. to interact with me completely different than if I'm Korean. But like in, in China, China, there's like not that many Koreans around and this is not an everyday problem. So maybe they'll just totally get it. And maybe they will be like, okay, I see, that's funny, but it's not going to hit the same way. <clears throat> or maybe they just won't get it at all because they just haven't lived in a place with a lot of non-Chinese people their whole life. So it's going to be hard to say. When, when you bring up that, I, I'd like to, to mention uh, a joke that you told, and I got it secondhand from, from our friend Mark Roswell, Dasha, oh, yeah. uh, told, told me this joke. And if you don't want to talk about it, we can edit it okay. out. <laughs> so don't worry. This is like, oh, uh, that's, but, this is a real Chinese TV professional that you just heard over here. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is the, <laughs> the technique. Yes, the, yes, the technique. <laughs> anyway, the, the joke, and I just sell it very quickly. You don't have to put a setup or anything. But you were, you were talking about you know, what it means to be Jewish, and you're Jewish, and there's stereotypes. And uh, you said the joke is that you notice that there's a similarity in the stereotypes Chinese people have it, and that uh, you know Westerners have. They say, "Oh, you're Jewish. Yeah, you people control the 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 uh, all the banking and all the media, you know." And you tell a Chinese person they have the same stereotype, but for them it's, "Oh, you're Jewish. Hey, way to go, dude! You control all the banking and and then the media, right?" Now, to me, that's a funny joke. That's a funny joke, but it's an uncomfortable joke. Mm. I mean, it is. It's an uncomfortable joke. Well, really well here's is. the but thing. That's, that's, the that's why it's so funny. The interesting but thing. The oh, yeah. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? Maybe I'm wrong. No, maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me. Is that the, the discomfort? I, 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 there is an element of discomfort, but I think that Americans are less comfortable than Chinese people are with that joke because Chinese people know they're not like evil at heart for thinking that. Oh, they don't have a record. They don't have a record of anti-Semitism. Yeah, right. So they're like. Oh, right. I see that's funny, but they don't, they're not as sensitive to it. Whereas in America, like you do have like hate groups and stuff like that, but there's no like anti-Jewish hate group in China. Well, what yeah. I'm saying though, is that for, I think it's almost funnier for an American. Yeah. It's yeah. a Lenny Bruce kind of discomfort. Yeah. yeah there's a little, a little something there. But my, but my question is, that's a joke you cannot tell on Chinese TV. I've been trying. I have a list of these jokes <laughs> that are like right at the edge. Like, you know, like in theory, 
you might be able to get away with. And this was always for these, right. these TV shows. Like, cause sometimes you get invited on these shows and it's like, they're not paying you. It's not a good show. It's going to be a mess. And my polite way of refusing these shows is I have all those edgy jokes that are really not that edgy, but like just the sort of thing that you can't really air in China's TV. And I'm like, if you'll do those jokes, I'll do the show for free. Um, uh, but like, but, and that's their way of saying, oh, what about your other jokes? I'm like, oh, if you want those jokes, you got to pay me. I have to have a contract, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to put in the big money, but these jokes I haven't gotten on TV and no one has been airing them. So if you can get them through, I will show up and do the show. And usually okay, the answer is no. That's interesting, but I can almost guarantee from what I've seen firsthand no, can't the media do it. trajectory here, you, you know, they'll, they'll edit anything. No, they can't do that. that out. My question, I guess, is uh, it, that's one of the differences I would expect you to be experiencing in front of a, a diaspora audience versus audience mm. here. The ones there are maybe not so maybe it's not so edgy there. They're kind of used to, uh, you know, there might be other things, a uh, kind of scatological sexual humor yeah. there. Probably they know they're more used to that. I, it, I mean, that's the other dynamic I'm wondering about from your personal standpoint, how it feels. I think that there's definitely been jokes that I've heard here that um, would not be told in the mainland uh, for political reasons or whatever. I think that I don't think that being exposed to like the Western comedy has too much of an impact, though, because the the big reasons are are one, when you speak in your native language, you're you're tethered for better or worse to the emotions of that language. So like whenever the whenever if you talk about political stuff in Chinese, you're going to have that that sort of like the sphincter tightening moment, regardless, <laughs> regardless of whether there's actually any threat to you. You've just been you've just all of us have essentially been so soaked in that environment. It's hard to get over in the other language. But this is one of the reasons why. Um, some of the Chinese comedians here don't do the Chinese comedy and they just go for the English comedy because one, they're very, very welcomed by all the white people for saying the types of jokes that the white people want to hear. And then the second reason is because you don't need to deal with that, that like crunch, the sphincter tightening moment. It can be a uh, way of expressing yourself and give you uh, more freedom. I think there's a second different type of freedom that comes from finding out how to express that in your native language because it's hard mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and how to break through that audience. So I have I have some jokes that I do. I have some jokes I do about my dad who is gay. I do have all these gay dad jokes. This is real. My dad is gay. I tell those jokes in Chinese and I fought really hard to find a way to say it in Chinese that people were comfortable with because it's not really that groundbreaking to say that joke in English. It is uh-huh. kind of groundbreaking to find a way to do it in Chinese. Right. Um, right. And right. my thinking is that really what I'm trying to do with that, because I'm not really saying that much at all about how Chinese society deals with gay people at all. That's not actually what the jokes are about. But what I think that I can do kind of in that sort of societal pushing the envelope sense is like, having people hear that in their language and kind of hear these stories of an alternate universe where maybe, you know, you know, people who are gay raise families. And like, this is like something you can use that language to talk about. And then of course, everybody's bilingual. So sometimes people will choose to do part of their act in the second language as well. In France, you know, their, their people would go into French and they go from Chinese into French, into English, into whatever, just however they can express themselves. So some of that is, some of that is touch. And some of it is um, like, you know, you might have an ulterior motive of saying, I want to do it in this language for a reason. 
for those of us who haven't been fortunate enough to be on a Chinese talent show, talk show, or variety show, and I'm the only one on this call that that's the case for, I was wondering, Jesse, for, to help us uh, help help those of us in the untalented masses experience what it's like to be invited onto a, a show, like you were saying, and, and what's the process like? How do you how do they find you? How do you negotiate it? Yeah. What are the what are the discussions over the material, the 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 pushback, mm. the push forward, all this stuff from from the moment someone says, "Wow, that Lao Wai seems pretty funny," mm. or at least everyone laughs at it. Yeah. How do we get them <laughs> on our show to when the show airs? What does that look like? I give you like a speed run through. So usually the you'll get some sort of private message over like a TikTok chat, uh, like chat or Weibo a private message or a friend of a friend, like, you know, a producer from a previous show will be like, we have a producer from another channel that wants to invite you on. Would you have a WeChat conversation with them? And then if you say yes to that, they'll kind of, um, I usually ask, uh, what's the show like? And then I ask, um, you know, like, are there any materials of the show? Because the first thing I want to figure out is like, is this show going to be shot maybe in nine months or is like, or are they shooting in six weeks and they actually want something? I find that the best opportunities are for shows that are about to shoot and they're screwed. So they, they know they need somebody and you actually have some leverage because the date is coming. They know the show isn't funny enough. And, um, and that way you actually have some leverage to say, you know, we're either going to do things my way or I'm not going on the show. Um, if you get in too early, you know, they'll waste all your time with talking about what if you did this, what if you did that? And it gets really hard. So back in China, I was doing shows all the time. I probably did like 300 shows a year. I was basically on stage almost every night and I would have recordings of my set and I would have, I would basically have, you know, whatever half an hour or whatever I was working on at the time. And I'd be, and I would have that video. And if they're like, we want you to do some, some stand up, and I'd say, great, here's half an hour, pick any jokes you want from that. I'm going to do them word for word, how it is. And I don't say this as aggressively, but I basically let them know I'm not adding anything, but you can take out as much as you want. This is the closest I've gotten within the Chinese media system to being able to write my own material and say what I want to say is I say, like, you can have these jokes that are killing it live right now, but I'm not going to write in extra stuff for you. And, and like, I'll, I'll listen to your ideas and then, like, I'll, I'll pretend to be interested because sometimes they say, what if you talk about this subject? And I actually do have jokes on that subject, so I'm, I'm happy to add it in. But I don't write in stuff because they're like, oh, we think the Lawai talking about this would be funny. I'm like, that's fine. Find another Lawai. There isn't one that actually does stand up. So like, you can, find a, you can find an amateur and put them on stage if that's what you want. But if you want, if you want somebody that's actually done this, these are the jokes you can choose from. And that actually makes the process much easier for everybody because they need a script, they need to know what they're going to submit, and that allows them to be able to have room for, they say, well, let's submit 15 minutes of stuff, and there'll definitely be six or seven that we're going to be able to air. And uh, and it actually makes the whole thing run pretty smoothly. The The downside is like, you know, you kind of have to be constantly working to be able to have that content ready. But that's also why it works best when those shows are like, we're, we're four weeks out and we need it to happen. So, so <clears throat> if, the, if that gets approved, then they'll we'll pick like uh, usually there's some sort of like a day or two of extra stuff, which is um, like, you know, you have to go in and get your clothes checked and like they have to make sure that you do some sort of like prep run. I fight really hard to not do the jokes with no audience ever 
just because I don't want there to be any like leverage that they have to say, oh, well, the director heard it with the empty audience and it's not that funny. And I'm like, again, you can't know. There's no way you could have known if it's funny with nobody there. Oh, but no, we'll have three or four people there. No, I'm not going to do it. If you want <laughs> to know that I can do it again, go check the video. I do this every night. Come to my live show. I'm doing it tonight. I'm not going to do it here. Um, and there's generally just kind of be a pain in the ass, which is really frustrating that like the best way to do things is to be really annoying. But like my goal on going on these shows is you don't make a ton of money. You don't, what you get out of it is that video at the end of whatever it is you're performing to be able to essentially use as your calling card. When other shows come along, they say, who are you? What do we do? Bam. Here's 10 minutes of me on that really good show doing really good comedy. So there's no point in going on the show if you're not going to do something that's actually good. And it's hard to do something that's actually good on the Chinese TV. So I kind of like once I realized you just kind of have to play this brinksmanship game, it actually got a lot easier because either and then like either this works or it doesn't. So then -hmm. you get to the shoot, the shoot day, you shoot the show. Usually it's some sort of like weird thing where they call you in at 10 a.m. and you're still recording at 2 a.m. for some reason and like. Uh, this is like television all around the world. It's like, you know, hurry up and wait. The difference being in China, there's no like, um, there's no uh, unions. So they, they'll they just keep you on overtime forever. Uh, here in Los Angeles, like the union rules, like rule everything. And so you can't keep people more than, if they say one minute over eight hours, you have to pay them another eight hours, even if it's only one minute. So if that rule mm-hmm. applied in China, uh, TV would be shot very differently, but it doesn't. You're shooting this thing. You're usually pretty tired. It's like you get weirdly lethargic sitting around all day doing nothing, staying on your phone, like just like wearing yourself out, worrying about how the show's going to go. And then you'll have like half an hour of really intense stuff where you're on stage, you're performing, you're talking with the audience. And then you still don't know if any of this will ever see the light of day because I've gone through that whole process for shows and then you just get edited out of the final version. And they'll never tell you you were edited out or they will cut your 13 minutes of jokes to like 90 seconds or they'll like, you know, they'll have like a scene where you're interacting with the other performers and like you're not even on the show, but somehow you're in the interaction scene. So like anything, anything can happen. And then once it's actually aired, it becomes that kind of calling card where you're like you now you have another bit. Well, you're you're making you're making stand up comedy sound like a really fun career. <laughs> just complete. You're you're I just actually, discouraged. I uh, actually don't like TV. Or... This is one of the reasons why, even though I did a lot of comedy, I did almost exclusively live stuff, and I actually didn't do that much TV when I was in China because. Um, yeah, I, it's the problems you I, the, the problems you state are exactly right. Yeah. It's it's not like doing a in a live you know in an audience. The audience is is also exhausted by the time yeah. you do your. And also, there's also weird like things with the audience. Like when I performed on, performed on Huan Le Si Juren, the audience was all fans of the Douyin She Xiangsheng Club. So yeah. like mm-hmm. they were there to see the Xiangsheng performers who are like the new heartthrob comedians. Um, it was like, whatever, 85% women. It was like, uh, you know, they don't generally speak that English that well because they're kind of pulled from everywhere. It's not a normal audience for a, for a standup show. And then the show might not be a good environment for a standup show because there are very few shows in China that really get standup and want to do standup. Usually they're more yeah. like Zongyi, like, um, like, you know, variety shows. So, well, it's, it's, it's sort of a new, th- it's sort of a new thing. I remember, uh, there was a spring festival gala in 2006 or seven, I think mm. when they actually were trying to encourage the hosts who's, who usually stand there like 
you know, uh, Ken and Barbie dolls with microphones, you know, and it's very yeah. forced smiles and artificial. And they said, you know, loosen up, relax, you know, and kind of uh, tease each other, dis, you know, yeah. insult each other a little bit. And they could not. They couldn't do it. Do it. Absolutely could well, not do it. it. But I, yeah. but, but this, I want to ask you another question. Yeah. Getting off of the performance mm. thing, because that's I know that's a, a headache in any crew. Mm. But I mean, uh, it's I, I'm fascinated by this this I the, the very idea, the very concept of a foreigner. A, a person foreign to the culture and not not their native language, mm. thinking that they can get up and do comedy mm. because this, now it's a thing. And I, I'm thinking of Joe Wong yeah. because you know I got I knew him when he was do, still performing in yeah. Boston, and people were say people would say, "Joe, what are you thinking? You you're not a native speaker. Yeah. You can't get up and do stand up comedy." Mm. But for him, it but it worked. It worked. He didn't pretend. It, he didn't pretend that it was uh you know that it was that it was he he just was who he was. Yeah. He was a foreigner. There's other extremes. The, the Dashan extreme is someone who tries to speak Chinese so good that you just forget yeah. about the language. You're just funny. And I think you're probably uh, on that extreme or at least trying to get there on that extreme. Mm. extreme. There's the other opposite. Is Remember this guy's Irish uh, uh, comedian named Des Bishop? I know Des, yeah. 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 Well, well, Des Bishop was amazing because his Chinese was terrible. But it worked. It, <laughs> but mean, it still worked. It, worked. it was crazy. It worked. Like watching Des Bishop do his first show in Chinese when he spoke very, very little Chinese was Really, I, I still remember it because he'd be like, oh, ni, uh, ni, uh, bu hao, um, you know, ni zuo he, he, um, uh, I don't know that. Okay. So I got, yeah, like, it, you know, but he, but it worked just because he, like, that's okay. That that's was the, real for him. The, that's, the, that's the question I wanted to ask. Yeah. And also, this woman, Nora, do you know who Nora she Yang. is? Chinese yeah, Canadian? I know Nora. Yeah, Nora Yang. Yeah. She is, her, her English is pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, really good, right? But she still is flawed, and yet. So my question, I get, this is a long-winded yeah. question, but my question is: the problem of being funny transcends your your language ability. I mean, people can be funny with no language, Mister B, yeah. right? So I'm I'm sort of saying, what? How can you say? You know, you try to be something. I think the the main problem is just to be funny. Period. Yeah. I mean, and then it doesn't matter whether it's English. Well, or this Chinese. was, I mean, one of Master Ding's best lessons to me, which I keep forgetting and then need to re-remember, but you always say, like first make the audience right. like you. And so that's part right. of the thing is like, if the audience doesn't like you, you're really going to be fighting uphill to make them laugh. If they do like right. you, you can get away with a lot weaker material. And I think the first, and this is where it's kind of hard is in order to make them like you, you need to like yourself. You know, they're like, you need to, you know, I, I, one of the comedians here in LA, he put it really well. He's like, stand up is really hard because you have to care, but you can't care too much. If you care too much, it's horrible. But if you don't care at all, you're just aloof and it, and it doesn't work either. So you have to hit this, this like taking yourself seriously enough that you deserve the audience res respect, but no more than that, because if you take yourself more seriously than that, you know, all of a sudden this becomes like a performance art piece. And it's not, it's not real. And so that's been the hardest part of doing the English comedy here in the States is like, I have built up a knowledge of who I am and how to be comfortable on stage in Chinese in front of Chinese people. I even have that confidence on stage in English in front of Chinese people or expats or, you know, whatever the, you know, the sort of Lawai group. But in America, like this is my first time living in this country as an mm. adult. I just this is my first apartment I've ever rented. Like I don't know how healthcare works, and like 
you think that that would be funny, but the audience in America has given me no shtick to hearing my immigrant problems when I look like this. <laughs> like, it's like, I have right. full on, I have full on immigrant problems. Everybody I know in LA is a first generation Chinese immigrant. And I go and complain to them that I have immigrant problems. They're like, we, we believe you like they that. It. They get it. They get it. And then I go and perform for all the white people or even the Chinese Americans. And they're like, we don't buy that at all. And I'm like, but, but this is me, but I'm be, I'm trying, this is really me, but it doesn't fit the, the image. So Right. It's ironic. I'm, I've kind of had to flip it around and be like, well, I had to analyze what Chinese people thought was funny. Now I have to analyze what Americans think is funny in this body. Right, right. And, um, right. and I'm confident there is something there, but it, I, I kind of almost feel <clears throat> like it has to come with me being more comfortable in my own body in America. Because, you know, let's be honest, like when I was I, you know, I've been back three years, but the first year and a half of that was basically in quarantine at my parents' house. That was not the way I normally live is like, you know, in my parents' house waiting for the world to reopen. I really only had about a year and a half of being a functioning adult in this country, you know, since graduating college. And so I'm still learning how to have that right mix of energy in the English language scene that I've kind of figured out in the Chinese scene. And you're right, it's not about the language because I speak English. Right. It's a, it's right. about yeah. comfort in who you are and your way of doing it. And that's why mm -hmm. that's why I think like, you know, I always encourage people who want to do comedy to get on TikTok and get on Xiaohongshu and just try to make stuff even if it's 20 seconds because you don't need a flash, you don't need fancy cameras. You don't need lighting. You don't need sound. You don't need anything. You need to be willing to be you in front of other people. And if you have that, you're, you have the thing that is so hard to do. You're, I, you're almost guaranteed to make it if you actually just do the work. I think there's, there's definitely a path forward for everybody in their own sense of humor. And like, you know, the people you mentioned, Des and Joe Wong and Nora are so different. And yet yeah. they're all they're all great comedians. So it works out. Right. So I have a question for you, Jesse. Yeah. After years of being in China and making people laugh completely unintentionally, <laughs> I've decided it's time to try to do it intentionally. Yeah. And so I've been going to open mics oh, nice. and, and trying to be funny. The Chinese or the English ones? Uh, the English ones. Nice. I, I have plenty of experience making Chinese people laugh yeah. at me. So I'm trying to work the on, the, on the on the Lawai. <laughs> nice. For, you've given some really great advice here for people who may be interested in pursuing a comedy career. If you if you had maybe two or three more tidbits to give, say somebody who was in your position, mm. you know, eight or nine years ago, or mm. say a middle aged man going through some kind of crisis, yep. uh, some some pointers on on comedy. What 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 would those be? I, I like this image of maybe you guys on the radio can't see it, but you have this guy. At Jeremiah's, I said, what about a middle-aged man going through a crisis? And meanwhile, there's a picture of Mao Zedong on the back wall as he's trying to figure out how to do his stand-up career. That is a crisis. Hua Guofeng. Not Mao Zedong. I had a Hua Juzi joke that I have not been able to try anywhere yet, and I don't know if it's going to be funny. It's probably not. Oh, give me a – No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not ready for it. It's not ready yet. It's it's still percolating. But I've got a Hua Juzi joke I can tell right now. Tell your Hua Juzi joke, and then I'll see if I can – So this is an old one. This has been around in Beijing for like, I don't know, 50 years or whatever. Yeah. It's a uh, so Hua Guofeng, Mao Zedong, and Deng Xiaoping are crossing a roped bridge. Yeah, 
and the rope bridge breaks and the ropes are only strong enough to hold two of the people's weight. And so Deng Xiaoping says, Chairman Mao, because you are the chairman, I will throw myself off of the rope bridge, sacrifice myself so that you shall mm. live. Hua Guofeng is so moved by Comrade Xiaoping's mm. sacrifice, he breaks into applause. <laughs> I like I didn't write that one. That's a that's an actual political joke from the nineteen seventies. I like it. That's that that's the good that's stuff. That's a great joke. That's the good that's stuff. Yeah, I was I was trying to think of like my my Huajuzi joke is a tag, which means it's like the first part has to work for the second part to work. But the first part I'm working on has to do with a a real issue I was dealing with during the pandemic, where I had all these online followers and I need to make money, but I couldn't do live shows. So what happened was I kept getting pitched by all these like junky brands from China that wanted me to sell their schlocky whatever. And one, the only one that I really regret not taking was there was a brand of watches and the watch brand was called Biden. And I asked them, I was just like, just out of curiosity, why did you name your brand Biden? And their answer, I felt so bad for them because it was not their fault. They got so close, but they missed. They said, well, we noticed the previous president put his name on everything. So we assume that Americans would also be interested in buying Biden watches. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not your fault, but you're so wrong. And it's like, I was trying to, and then here's where the, the other thing comes in is like, I was trying to think of how to explain this to Chinese people. It's like, you know, Chairman Mao was on all the posters, but no one's ever seen a Huajuzi poster. It's not like, like some people do it, some people don't, you know, um, there's some sort of something there. Um, but yeah, anyway, not the point, the, 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 going back to the question you actually asked, which is, um, advice for people starting out for comedy. The first thing is like, and I find this incredibly relaxing. It's not the word, but like relieving of pressure is, is to say, don't assume, you know, how funny your joke is. Just do it in front of the audience. Like, don't put all this pressure on yourself that I wrote a good one or I wrote a bad one. If you think it's funny or somebody laughed when you said something similar to it in real life, just put it on the list. Don't put too much expectation on it and just go up at an open mic and do it. Because like, even after doing this, you know, whatever, 12 years, I don't know which joke's going to work. I have a, I have an idea. Like I'm obviously trying to find my own like comedy sensibility, but you have no idea whether it will hit. You also don't know how hard it will hit. And you may find that, um, there's an element that works, but an element that doesn't, and you can fix that. So like, maybe you're, you come up with this joke and like, you know, the Biden watches joke, like that doesn't work, but people were interested in the fact that I had to sell schlocky Chinese brands. Okay. I learned something, you know, if I had been too worried about that joke to ever put it on stage, or if I had spent an hour crafting every single word. I didn't need to spend an hour crafting every single word. It turns out all I need to get out of that joke was the fact that people are interested in that topic and I can, okay, I can take that and run with it. So like, don't put too much pressure on yourself to know whether it's funny, go up and do the mics. And the other thing is uh, to be able to say like, I think that the biggest difference, it depends on whether you want to do this kind of semi-professionally or professionally. If you want to be a professional comedian, and that doesn't necessarily mean a stand-up, it could mean a comedy writer. It could mean somebody who writes ads for an ad company, but like writes funny ads, like people who are trying to use comedy professionally. Everybody has a sense of humor, but the thing that makes professionals professionals is they can take a bad joke and make it better. They can take a good joke and make it great. They can improve. And in order to improve, you need to analyze what was working and why. 
And so film your show because on stage, you might be worried you're bombing, but actually there are people laughing or people laugh at a different part of the joke than you thought. And you say, Oh, what was funny there? And then the, the easiest thing you can do to get your material to be better is just say, well, they laugh here and they laugh here. How do I get from here to here as quickly as possible? Just they're already laughing. I already have them. But if you, and, and really the difference between, you know, somebody who's kind of schlocking around at open mics and somebody who has a like material that can go on TV, you may not need to come up with any more jokes. You might just need to get your 10 loose minutes into three tight minutes. If you hit every laugh that you had in those 10 <clears> minutes, but you can do it in three minutes, all of a sudden this routine is, is punching, you know, think of like, you know, whatever Rodney Dangerfield or something like that, bam, 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 bam. Like, you know, it's coming. That, that tightness is really just a question of, you know, analyzing what's working and going for it. And then also, as I said, like, you know, not putting too much expectation, like on that joke, like maybe the topic is interesting. So this is a good to remember. We'll write more jokes on that topic in the future. Maybe you have an attitude that works, you know, like, you know, a lot of comedians, the attitude is what's driving it. Like anything that they can talk about that, that really, that, that sounds like this and that, that people are buying this energy. If people are buying that energy, anything you can talk about with that energy might be a good topic. Uh, and that analysis comes from filming your act. So that's the advice after all the words, film your act, see what actually what you're getting laughs and then try to understand a little bit about why you're getting the laugh there and realize that you might, you know, you might've succeeded in an area you didn't expect, or you might have like failed at something that you thought was working live, but then you go back and you realize it's not really working. I'd like to, uh, I know we're kind of running out of time or probably to the end of the show basically, but I wanted just to bring up again, something you brought back earlier that your, your goal was to you know, bring people together, yeah. uh, in this, especially this environment. And I want to pay you a compliment. One of the first things I saw when you were stuck outside, something you did was to have a, a kind of a, a show. It was in Boston, I think, when you were still there. And the audience was mixed, was was probably both Chinese and, mm. and Bostoners. I'm not sure. But but one of the things you did was to just uh, show the videos that were going around the internet about how people were coping in Wuhan mm. uh, with the with the uh, quarantine situation. And you know the videos were, were interesting and funny in themselves. But for me, this was a moment that was very cathartic because it was right at the height of this, these tensions. And you were showing these videos that were so funny, but also just so human. Mm. Uh, it, what we saw them happening, what we saw them doing was just what human beings do. And then later on, as it got worse, we saw the same kinds of yeah. very inventive sort of human solutions to these problems. And you made it very, very funny. And and I thought, wow, Je Jesse's got this. Is it this? Jesse's got the exactly the right idea. You find the commonality, you make fun of it, yeah. but in in the laughter, there's a kind of a catharsis that's really nice. And I thought that was very good. A good thing you did. Thank you. It's online. It encouraged people to see. Yeah, it. it's online. It's a real it's a real time capsule piece now because it took place in February of 2020 when China was locked down, but America was not yet locked down and didn't know what that's was going to happen. Saying, yeah. So it was. Yeah, it was. Um, I think the thing that fundamentally, whether it's in the comedy, whether it's in my tea, whether it's in writing or whatever, I think the the thing I've learned is respect. If you if you st if you clearly show respect for people, respect for culture, maybe the joke didn't work today, but the show was still valuable because that's a lot of it's what we're missing. We live in an era of mistrust, and you know we live in an era of saying like you know. Um, you know, people, whether it's comedy or tea, people on the tea thing will be like, you know, China, it's probably like full of heavy metals. Right. 
And I'd be like, look, they have a domestic testing thing. I have the testing form right here. You can choose to distrust it. But like, you know, I think that these these tea farmers have been protecting these trees for a thousand years. They really care about the health of that tree. I'm inclined to trust them uh, and the reports that say that the tree is healthy because think of what they have to lose from that tree and think of not just economically, like, you know, these trees are very important to the, to the culture of the region. Like if you start with that kind of respect, it's not just because obviously I don't want people drinking heavy metals. And so I don't buy teas that have heavy metal pollution in them. The, the bigger thing is like, um, if you start from that point of respect, you wind up being in a position where the haters just look really stupid. The haters look very scared, very paranoid. And if you don't respond to that with paranoia and just say like, look, like, you know, these people were put in a bad spot. They didn't expect to be stuck indoors and look at, they're making the best of it. Like, I think that people wind up respecting them. And then through that, they wind up saying, you know, that's the thing. And then that makes you as a cultural bridge look like a, a, a good cultural bridge and being able to back it up with the, with the language and the cultural knowledge helps too. So it's not just blind respect. It's like, no, I talked to them. Like if I didn't buy what they were saying, I would tell you, but I do buy what they're saying. And, you know, being willing to take that, that leap out, I think is important, especially when it becomes politically un, un inconvenient to do so. I think I've been, I mean, it's not my fight, but I've been a little bit frustrated at some of the, uh, there are not many, but there are some Chinese immigrant, like diaspora comedians here who are performing for Americans and they are, they're pitching themselves as Asian. They don't want to be Chinese in this environment. They want to be Asian because Asian content is in right now. And they'll be like, oh, K-pop is big. So you should hire me as an Asian comedian. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Like you're Chinese, own it. Like, you know, how far are we going to go in comedy without owning who we are? And yet you can get away with it for quite a while in another country. I mean, you can think of, um, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there are some people on television that are Laowai and they say these things. I'm like, I know you don't know that's true. Like, I know you don't believe that. There's no way that you actually believe what you're saying, but you're also not going to get found out for a long time. I think that being willing to say, you know, I do Chinese tea culture. I do Chinese comedy. I'm, I'm looking for a way to connect China and America. Like, I don't think people should be fighting. I think we should be trying to enjoy our lives uh, and um, just, you know, reminding people, I'm like, there's maybe 5,000 people in the whole world that benefit from China and America fighting a couple politicians, some political consultants, some arms dealers, and like people who are directly competing with Chinese products in the American market or vice versa. Like almost everybody else benefits from us living well together. And that's just a fact. Everybody else just wants to be able to travel freely, work where they want, see their family, eat food, and, and watch the TV shows they want to watch. That's, it's really that simple. And that's kind of an unpopular opinion to have right now in the States. And it's not, I, I don't think it's wrong. It's just like, it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of calling everybody out for their paranoia and, and it is a little bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, I don't think it's wrong. So I think being willing to say that then puts you in a position where you can start to address that mistrust and, and, and approach things from a point of respect. And hopefully if you do that well, your, your art, whether it's comedy, whether it's tea, whether it's social media will kind of feel good. And if it feels good, that's the first step to making it work. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. We'll have a complete list of links to all of Jesse's multi-platform dominance yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> 
I think David's looking at me right now and going, I have to put all the links in there. Yep, all the links. Every link. A lot link, of them. <laughs> every social media site. Everything. And my name on every and social also, media uh, platform is different because I have not done this well. So you're going to need to know them all. <laughs> and we'll also put a link to uh, Jesse's uh, Tea House where your teas can be refreshingly free of heavy metal. It is purely Marie Osmond, John Denver, and Taylor Swift and Jesse's Teas. Yeah. <laughs> no metal whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. David, thank you for calling in from like six miles away. And and right. thank you all for listening. Uh, join us again on another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. And we are out. Bye-bye. <laughs>